Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover cervical carcinoma. Cervical cancer was once one of the most common causes of cancer-related deaths among women worldwide. In 2015, the American Cancer Society estimated that almost 13,000 women would be diagnosed and 4,000 women would die from cervical cancer in the U.S. Now, in the United States, Hispanic women are most likely to get cervical cancer, followed by African-American women, Asians, and Pacific Islanders, and then, lastly, Caucasians. Occasions. Women who have cervical cancer that has been caught early have excellent survival rates. About 92% will survive through the first five years after their diagnosis. Cervical cancer will most often affect women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, although approximately 20% of cervical cancers are diagnosed in women over the age of 65. There are two main types of cervical cancer, squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma originates in the squamous epithelial cells usually found on the outer surface of the cervix. Adenocarcinoma originates in the glandular cells typically located higher in the cervical canal, which obviously makes it difficult to detect through routine screening methods. The pathophysiology of how HPV takes a normal cervical cell and transforms it to carcinoma is well documented. Two main oncoproteins play a role here. E6, which binds P53 and helps to block cellular apoptosis, leading to disorganized growth. The second oncoprotein is E7. This binds to the retinoblastoma tumor suppressor gene, driving cells into disarrayed cellular structures. Several well-established risk factors for the development of cervical cancer have been published, including nutrition deficiency, genetic factors, low socioeconomic status, tobacco usage, having multiple sexual partners, poor personal hygiene, and in some studies, although it's controversial, high usage of oral contraception. Now, the key factor, the key risk factor for cervical cancer is the presence or persistence of human papillomavirus. Okay, so let's cover these risk factors in a little bit more detail. Regarding sexual activity, not only is multiple sexual partners a risk factor, but early age of sexual activity seems to be of paramount importance. Next, let's get into human papillomaviral infection. There are more than 70 distinct HPV subtypes that can infect the human cervix. 75 to 80 percent of sexually active adults have evidence of HPV infection by the age of 50. Now remember that most HPV that's acquired in the teens and early 20s has a high spontaneous regression rate of about 93 to 94%. HPV DNA is present in 99.7% of all cervical cancers. The subtypes determine the specific clinical disease. Types 6 and 11 have the majority of genital wart burden, whereas HPV 16 and 18 are found in 70 to 75% of all cervical cancer cases. Squamous cell carcinoma is usually associated with HPV 16, 18, 58, 33, and 45. Adenocarcinoma is associated with HPV 16 in 36% of the cases, 18 in 37%, and less commonly 45, 31, and HPV 33. 
Most HPV infections, again, are transient. These viruses alone are not sufficient to cause cervical neoplasia. It takes a combination of factors in addition to HPV to progress from normal cellular structure to dysplasia and then finally to carcinoma. Regarding the histopathology of cervical cancer, almost 70% are squamous cell cancers, either large cell, small cell, or verrucous types. Adenocarcinoma makes up about 25% of all cervical cancers, and this is either endocervical, endometrial, clear cell, or adenocystic type. Other histologies make up less than 5% of cervical cancer cases. All right, next, let's come back and let's get into the FIGO staging system for cervical cancer. All right, regarding the staging from FIGO, that's the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics. Remember that staging for cervical cancer is clinical, not surgical. Although surgical staging is found to be more accurate than clinical staging, surgical staging has not been found in the literature to improve patient outcomes over clinical pre-surgical staging alone. A complete history and physical, including a rectovaginal exam, should be performed, including palpation of the right upper quadrant, the inguinal area, and the supraclavicular nodes to assess for metastatic disease. To establish the extent of disease, cystoscopy, proctoscopy, intravenous pyelogram, and radiologic examination of the lungs and bones are approved tests for staging, according to FIGO. PET scans and CT scans for retroperitoneal and upper abdominal disease can be obtained, but remember that these results will not affect the FIGO clinical stage. PET scans and CT scans do have a sensitivity of 93 to 96% and a specificity of 93 to 95% for extended disease. Also, lastly, a complete blood count, renal, and liver tests should be obtained at baseline. Stage 1 is cervical carcinoma confined to the uterus. Stage 1 is subdivided into stage 1A and stage 1B. Both of these are further subdivided into stage 1A1, 1A2, and for 1B, 1B1, and 1B2. Now, for stage 1A, this is disease confirmed only by microscopy, with 1A1 having a stromal invasion less than 3 millimeters in depth and less than 7 millimeters in horizontal spread. Now, stage 1A2 has stromal invasion between 3 millimeters and 5 millimeters in depth and less than 7 millimeters in horizontal spread. For stage 1b, this is clinically visible lesions but is still confined to the cervix or has microscopic disease that is greater than a 1a1 or a 1a2. Stage 1b1 is clinically visible lesions but they are less than 4 centimeters. 1b2 is clinically visible lesions greater than 4 centimeters, also called a bulky cervical lesion. While a stage 1A1 can be successfully treated with a cone biopsy or extrafascial or a simple hysterectomy plus pelvic lymph nodes if the cone margins are positive, a stage 1A2 and above requires a modified radical hysterectomy with adjuvant radiation therapy. 
for stage 1B. One, a radical hysterectomy and pelvic lymph node dissection with adjuvant pelvic RT is required for stage 1B. Two, remember, that's the bulky cervical disease. The treatment usually is radical hysterectomy and pelvic lymph node dissection with paraaortic lymph nodes and adjuvant radiation therapy or definitive pelvic chemoradiation plus brachytherapy versus pelvic chemoradiation and adjuvant hysterectomy. Stage 2 cervical cancer is when the cervical carcinoma invades beyond the uterus, but it does not yet extend to the pelvic wall or the lower third of the vagina. So let's break these up. Stage 2A is tumor without parametral invasion or involvement of the lower third of the vagina. Stage 2B is tumor with parametrial invasion. Stage 3, as a general class, has tumor extending to the pelvic wall and or involves the lower third of the vagina and or causes hydronephrosis or a non-functional kidney. Lastly, stage 4 is when the tumor invades the mucosa of the bladder or rectum or extends beyond the true pelvis. If there's bullous edema, that's not sufficient enough to classify it as a stage 4, but it does have to have true extension outside of the pelvis. For a stage 4B, that's distant metastasis, including peritoneal spread, involvement of the supraclavicular, mediastinal, or paraaortic lymph nodes to the lung, liver, or bone. There is a general change in therapy from stage 3 and above. While radical hysterectomy with pelvic and periodic lymph node dissection can be done prior to stage 3, stage 3 usually has a primary mode of therapy of primary pelvic chemoradiation and brachytherapy. For stage 4A, primary pelvic chemoradiation and brachytherapy still applies. But for stage 4B, platinum-based regimens with plaxitaxel and Avastin is recommended. New treatments have arisen for metastatic or advanced cervical cancer like Avastin. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration in August of 2014 approved Avastin, which is bevacizumab, for the treatment of persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer in addition with plaxitaxel and cisplatin or plaxitaxel and topotecan. Avastin is a recombinant humanized monoclonal antibody that blocks angiogenesis by inhibiting vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF-A. According to the data, patients with advanced, recurrent, or persistent cervical cancer that were not curable with standard treatments and received the drug Avastin lived about four months longer than patients who did not receive the drug, according to findings from a large randomized clinical trial published prior to the FDA approval. The results were released based on the interim analysis in 2013, with updates presented as part of the American Society of Clinical Oncology in their meeting in 2013. This clinical trial was known as the GOG240-240, and it was sponsored by the National Cancer Institute as part of the National Institute of Health. Now, patients who received this medication did meet their primary endpoint of demonstrating improved overall survival in patients who received the drug, which also means that it delayed the chance of dying from the disease. All right, this wraps up our quick review of cervical cancer, its pathophysiology, staging, and new advances to include a vastin for recurrent or metastatic advanced disease. We'll see you next time.